The Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network is brought to you by Moultrie Mobile. Transform the way you hunt with the all-new base cellular trail camera connected by the Moultrie Mobile app. Moultrie Mobile's industry-best app gives you complete control over your camera settings, up-to-the-minute updates from the field, and other interactive scouting tools on your smartphone or computer. Features like weather forecast, advanced species recognition, interactive maps, and a whole lot more. For more information and to make your purchase, visit www.moultriemobile.com. Welcome back to another episode of the Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Mitchell Sherrick, and this week we are going to be reverting back and finishing up the episode and the conversation we had with Steve Chilcote. Now, if you missed that episode a couple weeks back, we did an interview with Steve Chilcote of Chilcote Forestry, and we broke it into two parts because there was a lot of information in that episode to dissect, and we kind of broke it down into a couple pieces, and we were really focusing in on that private land series that we started, and we talked about conceptual access, and we talked about land framework with food plots, and Steve kind of took the reins of managing what you have on your property. We tried to be as diverse as we possibly could in the realm of Pennsylvania forests and landscapes and trying to give you ideas of what the natural seed bank is, um, what's there, and how to provide good cover, good browse, and the combination of the two. And this episode, he's going to be picking back up where he left off. We were talking about invasive, invasive species when we left off. Um, he was talking about uh, Japanese stilt grass and some honeysuckle. And we're going to pick back up into that invasive species topic, and we're going to transition into um, replacing those uh, invasives with quality stuff. Uh, we're going to talk about adding quality cover, whether that's in the form of conifers or treating the invasives with herbicide and using the, the sunlight and disturbed soil to stimulate uh, new plant growth what's in the seed bank and uh, just see what we have to offer there and uh, you know Steve's like nobody else you know no other person here he's uh, an avid hunter and he, he loves to talk hunting he loves to talk strategy and Steve's going to get on some tangents here and some of the things that he sees on properties and the flaws that he might see when when people are trying to reach a certain goal but you know there might be flaws in hunting strategy or access or anything like that and you know, we're going to talk a little bit in this episode about some of his thought process and how you need to set properties up um, to uh, to hunt them efficiently and to reach the goals if you're looking to harvest the best deer in the area. If you're trying to be that one property that just makes all the difference in the entire neighborhood. So I hope you really enjoy this episode. If you missed the first episode, make sure you check it out. It's just uh, part one of interview with Steve Chilcote. And uh, we're, we're going to wrap this one up. And I think you're going to really enjoy it. So thanks for tuning in. What about some of like the invasive shrubs? Um, there's a lot of places I've been, a lot of properties I've walked that have a ton of those invasive shrubs and a lot of people think, Ooh, that's low lying. It's good deer cover. It's good rabbit cover. this and that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. When you get into barberry, uh, privet and, uh, honeysuckle, mm-hmm. things like that, autumn olive, you want to take a good look at that because I've, I've been on properties where 
NRCS was funding the removal of these invasive, these foreign invasives. Mm-hmm. But that was also where the deer were bedded down. Because it was the only cover, right? Because it was the only thick cover. So you have to be careful. Like, um, if you're going to go after those, you may want to leave some of it behind. Right. Same with autumn olive. Autumn olive is one of the toughest shrubs I've ever seen in my life. Just as an example, I in my yard, I have horrible soil. You could make literally make bricks out of my soil. Mm. <laughs> and I would, I spent years just buying all kinds of shrubs for 25 bucks a pot, planting them, and they don't grow. They die. And one day I was on this timber sale. It was real dry. We were in a drought, and I just grabbed an autumn olive, and I, I yanked it out of the ground, and I planted it. <laughs> and that thing is out of control right now. It's It's like 10 feet tall. I have to clip it back every year. And that's why they brought it here. Um, you know, the Game Commission handed that stuff out for yeah. years because it had a berry. It, it was a no-fail shrub. It's also a legume, so it fixes nitrogen. And that's all well and good, but it's all, it also exhibits allelopathy. And when you have a thicket of it, nothing else grows there. Mm-hmm. Now, the deer bed down in it? Yeah, sometimes. Do they eat it? I've had people tell me that they've seen deer eat the berries. Right. But I, I really, um, I would argue that some of these foreign invasive shrubs, um, since our animals did not evolve with these plants, I don't think they get any nutrition out of them. Right, right. Like I, I know that grouse will eat barberries. Okay. For sure. So will deer. But I did read somewhere, I'm not an expert, but I, I did read somewhere where the nutrition quality of those berries is poor. Okay. So what I try to do is reintroduce viburnums, native viburnums. There's several species, dogwoods, several species of dogwoods, all of which put out berries and make good browse. Pretty much anything that is has opposite branching, deer will browse on. Now, make sure people understand what you mean opposite. You're talking on the branch stem, opposite, meaning every yeah. other side is split versus alternate, right? Every every node puts out two branches off the main branch at right. the same spot. And then alternate is the, right. Just they just alternate left like, and right. Like the trees that I'm thinking of that are opposite or alternate, like oaks are alternates, right? No. They're uh, opposites, rather. So a good acronym is MAD DOG. So you have okay. maple, ash, dogwood, and then there's some others. But that's one way of memorizing. Okay. So uh, if you have red maple and it's tall and it's not making a good piece of timber, mm-hmm. which any place that is lower elevations, like from this point, we're in Center County. Right. From here to the south, it doesn't make good timber. So the only good red maple is a cut down red maple. Okay. So it also is a, a vigorous sprouter. So if you're going to do hinge cutting or something like that, a red maple is a good, a good candidate for that because deer really do like to eat the stump sprouts and the, the sprout, the new sprouts. Mm. Same with dogwood, but I, Dogwood is so hard to come by anymore. 
you know, I, I don't want to really hinge cut that. Sure. If I can help it. And we're trying to plant those back into the landscape. Right. So I have a couple of properties that I'm working on that do have deer fences up. And I'm trying to convince those landowners to plant shrubs. And we'll see what we can get done. But once you get those established, you'd be surprised. I mean, the amount of bird life that comes in to those regenerated areas to get the berries and the nesting. There's a lot of birds that nest in mid-canopy, so they need kind of small trees. Some of them need big trees, and and they nest on the ground, but they still need big oak trees to forage on. That's your uh, your uh, golden-winged warbler and mm-hmm. cerulean warbler. Um, they're almost on the endangered species list because of lack of habitat. So, we, you know, we try to make something out of nothing a lot of times where I'll, I'll get funding to do a cerulean warbler habitat project. But it's really a, not only that, we care about all wildlife, but it's also good for deer. So we can use that funding to get projects done and they're, they're good for all wildlife really they're they're really what what you'd call those is kind of like indicator species of good quality habitat yeah you know you everybody anybody who's listening to a podcast or most people who are listening to podcasts they're driven by what they're chasing in the fall you know deer turkeys bear whatever that is but all the stuff that you're talking about there why should want somebody care about that is Exactly for that. Those are indicator species of good habitat. Before we get into, you know, you touch base about replacing with some quality stuff. Let's let's stick on this uh, this invasive for a little bit longer. So we, you brought up uh, autumn olive being so vigorous, and there's properties that are just absolutely polluted with it to the point where you can't even penetrate that, neither can deer. So you, you'd made a comment about how to progressively take some out but leave some there. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about whether from experience or just ideologies of what you would do to slowly remove and then slowly replace and have that best of both worlds where you never lose that cover, but you're making that transition to better plants. You could take a forestry mulcher. Um, You're going to need a decent sized area for a guy to move that machine onto the property. So let's say you have five acres of of area that you can work with out of say say if you have a pretty pretty big property and it's a few hundred acres you could possibly have 50 acres that are that you have a problem i, I have a i have a piece of land in mine right now that's 200 acres and there's a, a creek valley that creek valley is completely 100 percent autumn olive now because the ash that was in there all died I would go through there with a mulcher and take out as much as I could afford to do in one year, leave some of it, and then start planting things in. Like you could, you could plant some viburnums in there and some dogwoods. Uh, you could put native grass. You know, if the deer are hammering all your plantings, you may want to just put switchgrass in there. Huh. And that creates great cover. And the nice thing about grass is you can light it on fire and it'll pretty much kill everything else that's growing in there if you if you have a problem. If you start seeing autumn olive popping up, send a fire up through there. 
keep it at bay. Mm. Um, but again, I would not take all of it at once because you don't want to make your property devoid of any bedding cover unless you're going to do a logging job somewhere else. But that brings me back to my point of using logging as a source of income to rotate back into your property. Mm. Um, you know, I have people that watch my YouTube videos. I had one guy send a uh, nasty remark like, how do you expect people to afford what you're doing? I said, well, you know, it didn't cost this landowner anything. Right. Uh, that's the guy that, you know, we did about $20,000 worth of work. And uh, Planning and hard work, I think, is is a big part of it. Yeah, well, you have to measure what you have and evaluate it and then go from there. And that's a lot of what I've done lately is not so much timber sales because timber sales, uh, most of the properties I, I look at don't have any timber left mm-hmm. to sell. And uh, I usually tell people I, I would not high grade this anymore. It's already, if you do it one more time, you'll never have timber here again until the next ice age or whatever is going to happen next. Sure. So sometimes I just talk people out of it. Sometimes I talk myself out of a job because they just go elsewhere, migrate it again anyway. <laughs> but where was I going? What was your original question? Oh, we were talking about uh, transitioning severely polluted invasive plants and then trying to replace them with stuff that's quality. Yeah. So you, oh, you know, it, it's it's a really important concept to think about what you're going to replace your invasives with. You end up with the same thing back again if you don't replace it. For instance, I have a, a landowner who uses, he won't allow any spray. Okay. But he has a big problem with um, stilt grass and mile a minute. So what he does is he pens in hogs and lets the hogs eat all the stilt grass and churn everything up. And they'll pull down, once they run out of things to eat, they'll pull down that that uh, mile a minute and eat that too. So then he goes in after the hogs and he puts some winter wheat down or, you know, you could replace that with something that deer would eat or something that's covered like a native warm season grasses. Mm-hmm. You always want to replace because you'll just end up right back where you started from if you don't replace that plant with something else. Because nature won't allow a vacuum. Right. If there's bare soil, something's going to grow there. So you might as well control what's growing and not let that invasive plant come back. You know, coming from my line of work as an agronomist, um, chemicals are a tool. You know, they're not the end-all, be-all, and and complete reliance on chemicals is bad management. But uh, using chemicals are a tool, and I'm very pro using it when the shoe fits. Yeah. Um, You know, the the, you said about uh, taking a forestry mulcher to some of that autumn olive. Um, Do you find that to make sure something can get established, do you have to follow up with that forestry mulcher and doing a herbicide application? Never think that you're going to spray something and then that's it because it's not it. <laughs> yeah, that's just the beginning. Yeah. So um, just outside of town here, I had a guy call me. He had a honeysuckle that was 10 feet tall and you couldn't, a rabbit couldn't get in there. Wow. Um, 
So we used a mulcher. I, I owned a mulcher at the time. So we mulched it. Then we dragged everything out and burned it because it was in his yard. Right. So he wanted that looking good. Normally, you would just mulch it and leave it on the ground. So now um, in the spring, those plants started to re-sprout. And I went back and I stump treated. And then I went back in the late summer. And anything that still survived, I hit that again. And just by doing that, other plants started growing. You know, we started getting wildflowers and native grass. And it looks great to this day. But without that little bit of follow-up, by hitting those stumps, um, he'd be right back where he started. For sure. And you make sure people understand, like, if you're not really used to this amount of work, you, you talked about a biological a biological control of mowing with a forestry mulcher. Mm-hmm. Then you're talking about coming back with two herbicide applications. It's continual maintenance to make that transition. It's a lot of work. Um, so we, we talked a lot about invasives. Um, do you want to uh, kind of go into a little bit more about that replacement? You, know, you talked about, you know, dogwoods and a couple other species. You know, we, we want to have diverse landscape. We want to have stuff that creates browse, creates cover, um, you know, from from here in Center County to wherever you your, your, your work might take you. What early succession are we really filling the gaps in and really trying to promote how we maintain that? Well, as long as you can keep invasives and deer out of your area and you have a seed bank, you can see what comes up from the seed bank. There's usually a lot of seed in the forest already or in an old field. It just hasn't been able to germinate because it's being shaded out. Um, you need a little disturbance, get rid of invasives, and then you'll see what comes up. And then you can sort of selectively treat that you know, spray a little bit where you, you know, you see an invasive pop up or something you don't want that it's not good for deer cover. You can hit that with some glyphosate, you know, and spend a Saturday just doing that. Mm-hmm. You can get a lot done in the summertime. You got all summer. Throw on a backpack and go out and spot spray stuff, and you can adjust what's growing out there. For sure. That um, takes a little bit of plant ID. It does. And then, but you, that, there's so much available, so much information available um, just on your phone. These plant ID mm. deals on your phone, they're fantastic. Right. It saves you having to key stuff out with a book and spend a half an hour trying to look up some weed. You don't know what it is. Penn State's so, got a lot of good information for, for – Yeah, and once – you know, there's, there's just a few plants that are a problem. They're easy to identify. And – so the other the other thing you can do, it's a bunch of work and expense, but you can use things like, uh, you know, say you, you plant dogwood, okay? Stick the dogwood in the ground. A deer is going to eat that. Mm. It doesn't matter what you plant. If it came out of a nursery, deer will eat it because it's grown in perfect conditions, fertilized, and the deer can sense that good nutrition in that leaf and they're going to eat it. Certainly. Uh, they'll even eat pine and spruce a lot of times. Right. Because it came out of a nursery. So you have to put some protection on there. And what you can do is get yourself some wire, you know, get some hog wire and make loops out of it. You take your hoop out there, you plant a couple dogwoods or 
You can even take a circle that's six feet, put three different types of plants in there and cover it. A couple years later, it's up as high as your, your hog wire. Take it off of there and plant some more. Just keep going. Mm -hmm. And eventually, as the years go by, you can, you can uh, replace a lot of shrubs that are missing from the landscape. And it's great. I mean, watch deer come in there and eat a few leaves off the bottom, but it's up out of browse height, so it can't kill. Right. A lot of these plants are, you know, they're, they're adapted to being browsed upon by deer. So they do really well once they're up and growing and mature. Once they're established. They're established is the word. Yeah. All right. You made another good point, and I wanted to kind of transition into that. You said about adding conifer, adding spruce, mm-hmm. adding white pine, whatever that would be. Where where do you uh, have good success with that, or where have you seen good success with that? Kind of the same situations of just controlling those invasives and then getting them established? Or I've had good success with um, moving pines that grew, are growing wild. They're already, you know, this tall. You can dig them up and move, move them around, and they do really well. And then take a chainsaw and uh, do some TSI to let some light in, and they'll take off. And you can thicken up an area very nicely there. Now that's not for that. You know, I was probably your age when I did that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, in the thirties and forties. So that's not something I do anymore, but. Um, and I've also done the, the cages where you plant some stuff and put the cage on and then move it. But you have to be really, really patient and keep moving. The worst thing you can do is let 20 years go by, do absolutely nothing because you think you're, you're trying to empty a lake with a spoon sometimes. But you'd be surprised what can happen over a period of 20 years. The 20 years are going to go by anyway. So, you can add value to your property. And I've seen some guys that I'm actually going to try to get to their properties this summer um, and do do video tours okay. because they're constantly working on their place. And it's amazing what they accomplish. It's their hobby. They take their chainsaw and their backpack sprayer and their little tractor or whatever it is they have, and they just keep working. You have any exposure? You're, you're really not in the climate where you would see them as much, but maybe you work on some properties to the south uh, using cedars on a property. What's what's your take on that? Because there's a lot of people that'll talk really negative about red cedars, and there's people that'll talk really positive about red cedars. I like red cedar. Um, I don't think it'll do well in, in really poor soils. Um, you usually see it showing up where you have limestone type soils. Mm-hmm. But uh, I know, like, uh, if you look at Grant Woods, you know, all he ever talks about is cutting the cedars and burning. But I think in Pennsylvania, it would be a great cover tree. And I can tell you one thing. When you see cedars growing, bucks are rubbing them. Mm-hmm. They love to rub them. It's not a bad idea to have some cedars. I would put them out in patches. Balance. And, yeah, I mean, uh, they're not going to be become invasive the way they do in some parts of the country right. around here. I've never seen it thick. Okay. Um, your best conifer tree in Pennsylvania is going to be white pine. 
Um, it's native. Nothing's killing it much. Deer like it when it's young and you have a thicket of it. Deer love to be in there. I know a place that was always full of deer, you couldn't even get them to come out of it. Mm. Now that it's matured, they never go in there. They're, they're just not in there because it's too open. Okay. So that's a case where, again, you know, nothing's ever done. You've got to take your chainsaw and... Even in a white pine forest like that. Well, yeah, you want to... You always want to be picking the winners. You see one that's doing well, that's above the others, cut the other ones down. They're going to die anyway. Right. So you might as well thicken up the area and grow timber all at the same time. So that go, takes us back to what we were saying before. Where you can have the best of both worlds. You can have timber and deer cover just by doing your TSI. Constantly. Certainly, certainly. So one thing I have in my mind, I'll, I'll breeze by. So we talked a bunch about managing in some oak hickory forest. Do you get into any like those beech birch maple forests dominating? Oh God, yeah, yeah. And like, what what do people got to do you know, to maintain them? You know, a, a beech suckered forest, which which is. Uh, when you go into the the northern hardwoods, like as soon as you go north of here, we're right in the middle. Right. When you go north of here, you get up on the Allegheny Plateau, and then you have higher elevations. There's less oak and more uh, northern hardwoods. And then when you get up into New York, it's it's sugar maple, red maple, beech, birch, um, ash. You know, not so much ash anymore, but those properties. From high grading, uh, even on state land, I did a lot of work on state land over the years with a chainsaw, cutting beach, because they would high grade these properties. And then what happens is beach is a really vigorous uh, sprouter from, uh, from the root. So as soon as you disturb the area, and the beach is already sick from beach bark complex, then they go, holy crap, I'm going to die, and I need I need to send up suckers. So now it starts to root sucker, and you end up with this thicket of solid beach and nothing else. And there's very little you can do about it except cut it off and stump tree. Mm. But I can tell you that when there was snow on the ground and I was cutting and stump treating beach, where I would leave off, there was always deer beds right at the edge of it. Mm. And that got me thinking that you could easily do this on your property with a chainsaw. Just go in and start cutting areas or strips. And deer love to bed in a spot where they, if they go one way, they're in thicket. But they, the way they orient themselves, they can see out through the woods. Generally, of course, you... You'd want the breeze to be coming from the thicket so they can smell anything trying to sneak up on them. Right. And they can see out in front. And that, that just makes terrific bedding cover. And, um, those beach being on the ground act as fences and, they, and you can get maple to start coming up. A lot of times there's, uh, blackberry seeds in the ground mm-hmm. already in the seed bank. Those things will last for 50 years in the seed bank. So as soon as you disturb an area and get sunlight to the forest floor, it starts taking off. Well, now you have fruit, browse, cover, the whole works. 
blackberries to root. Certainly. Um, I was going to. That was one of the biggest things I was thinking in my mind is you get rid of that those beech and you stump trout them. What uh, stump treat them? Yeah. What do you replace it with? And then you answered that. Well, the northern hardwoods is a it's a better soil. So a lot of times it's usually glaciated soil. So they're a little bit better, mm-hmm. higher quality. There's more. Um, there's more of a uh, organic layer there. And there's usually quite a bit of growth. You know, you get sugar maple, red maple. Blackberry comes up first. And then the trees will start growing right up through that blackberry eventually. And that's where that cover, you know, we talked about in our other podcasts in this series was basically like uh, maximizing your efficiency of your property all all deer all times as much as possible. And within that is, is kind of what we just talked about for the last hour was what is within inside that. We're really talking about getting rid of the invasives, creating good space, but having low cover of quality browse. Because cover isn't just cover. Cover is browse. Deer, where deer bed and where deer want to spend their time in daylight hours, they want to be browsing. They want to be eating. I mean, they're browsers by nature. Yeah, I, I had the opportunity to watch um, down here on Seven Mountains. I set up a, a scope. I was with some long-range hunting guys. Okay. They shoot from ridge to ridge. And all day I was scoping these deer. There were seven bucks I could see on that hillside. And they were in there because it's steep. And there's no – it was down by the reservoir. It's all blocked off on one side. So not everyone can get up that valley. And it's real steep. So nobody's going to come down from the top and hunt because you can't drag a deer back up the hill. And that's why they're in there. There's seven bucks there. And all day long, they'd, they'd move and they'd scratch. They'd bed down. There was, there was snow on the ground. And uh, a little while later, they'd get up. They'd feed a little walk around there they didn't play still all day right they're constantly moving around feeding so it's important to have a little something to browse on in the bedding area um one thing i wrote down and i I wanted to breeze past you and get your thoughts on uh listen to another podcast of i believe it was dr Dwayne diefenbach talking about regeneration and talking about that one of the other contributing factors to not getting good quality regeneration back was the amount of acid rain we've had over the years, the impact to the soil. Mm. Um, I mean, is that something you finding as part of it in, in well, your line of work? Are you seeing that being part you, of the you issue? You know what's interesting about the, the acid rain issue? That I remember way back that before the, they got on the fad of uh, global warming, it was acid rain. Okay. Acid rain was killing everything. The forests were all going to die. Okay, so then they started uh, putting scrubbers on the on the midwestern smokestacks. Mm-hmm. Well, turns out that the sulfur that was coming out of those smokestacks really helped the uh, the quality of the cherry in the northern Pennsylvania. <laughs> so, Interesting. We don't have cherry like we used to have. No. You know there were cherries. I've seen cherries that were worth a thousand dollars a piece growing in the woods. Big. Telephone poles, clean and tall. It doesn't grow like that anymore. That stuff is pretty much gone from the landscape. Um, acid is the normal state of the forest soils. 
Uh, I've seen pH is down to 4.6 in some areas. That has a lot to do with the parent material. Okay. It's just not something I, I don't think of acid rain as being an issue in the forest. I okay. Just, I just don't. Um, there was a lot of speculation about that where, you know, if you get your pH down super low, then you start to mobilize uh, aluminum, which binds with nutrients and doesn't allow good nutrients to get into the plants. But then you have uh, things that can put up with that. You know, you get, you go up to the Poconos and everything is blueberries and rhododendron and mountain laurel, all of which is terrific deer cover. So it's, it's not, not a problem. If, uh, if somebody's listening to this and they're going to start to make some transitions of that cover, browse portion of their property, but they're on a budget, they're, they're only going to spend between 500 and a thousand dollars this year on equipment. What are the what are the absolute must have pieces of equipment in that arsenal? Well, since you mentioned equipment, I do get this question a lot. What should I get? Like a lot of guys have a small tractor, which is great, and I get guys that say, uh, "What should I have as an implement to go with my tractor?" Everybody has a, a brush hog. I say, "Well." Trade that brush hog in, get yourself a sprayer, because brush hogging is one of the worst things you can do. And people like to recreationally mow, <laughs> I notice. And uh, that spreads a lot of weeds. If you ever look at a mower deck, it's like you were collecting seeds. It's covered in seeds, right? Right. And I know one guy that mows all the time, mows his trails, and he's just planting stilt grass all up through his place. So <clears throat> I think you should have a sprayer. Even if, if you don't have a tractor, um, have a four-wheeler sprayer. If you don't have a four-wheeler, get a backpack sprayer. Get a chainsaw. You can buy a small used chainsaw. And take a class. You know, I'm going to tell you right now, chainsaws are not safe. Yeah, this anything. podcast isn't the, just to say, go out, have out of the chainsaw. No. <laughs> um, you know, one of my mentors from graduate school was, was killed. And there's a, there's a, an experienced guy who was killed by a tree. And, uh, you know, that's a sad thing. And I had uh, another guy a couple years back, a local logger hired a very experienced logger been cutting trees his whole life if the logger hadn't been on the landing when he cut himself he'd have died he'd bled out right there mm. he had chaps on he had a helmet face mask and he cut his his artery on his leg somehow um i've had some close calls i've been hit in the head um, and i suffer every day from headaches and Neck problems because I, you know, broke some bones. Oof. Broke some, broke my spine. And one time I had a tree coming at me that I just looked over my shoulder and there's a tree coming at me. It would have killed me. Mm. And I spun out of the way. It crushed my chainsaw, destroyed. Um, but it makes you think, you know, uh, it, it, chainsaws are just nothing to fool around with. 
You could even get a, a handsaw, a silky saw. If you can look up silky saw on the internet and get yourself one, man, those things cut. You can cut almost as fast with that thing as you can with a chainsaw on a small tree. Hmm. So if you're in there and you're hinge cutting or something like that, get a habitat hook and a, and a silky saw. You can get a lot done. Uh, you can get a lot done with uh, a little squirt bottle and a hatchet. Mm-hmm. Cost you, what, 25 bucks or something yeah. for the whole works. So not wanting to spend money is not an excuse. I would say that, you know, if you had a planting dibble, a good backpack sprayer, hatchet, a saw of some kind, that's all you need. I wouldn't, I see people all the time getting big pickup trucks and get a $70,000 pickup truck. But they won't buy a backpack spreader to cost four hundred dollars. Right. You brought up a good point. I wanted to, to four wheelers. I hate four wheelers. <laughs> they're they're a tool, but they're misused. I think everybody wants to ride around on those things, and they a lot of times when I go to a landowner, he says, "Oh, I got a side by side. Let's hop in, and I'll show you the place." I said, "No, I, I'd rather walk because I can't see the place." If you're only driving on trails. Exactly. Yeah. And it's just not uh, not conducive to deer hunting, I can tell you that. Right. I have people argue with me all the time. Well, I see deer. Hey, you see does and fawns and one and a half year old bucks, maybe. And Mature uh, buck don't put up with that. I'm not going to put up with it. And um, I remember uh, Grant Woods was talking about uh, dropping people off. And picking them up with a four wheel, but on his property, they're constantly doing management, so they're always out there roaming around on four wheelers and pickups on these roads. And so there's there there's times when that's true, and times when it's not. When it's not true is when it's real quiet all summer, and the deer are out in the food plots, and they're doing whatever you want to do. It's easy going. And all of a sudden, there's all this four-wheeler traffic. Mm-hmm. They know the difference. You know, if, if you're a farmer and you're constantly going out and feeding your cows and doing chores and fixing fences, they're like, well, here comes the farmer. He never hurts us. But when guys, especially if you shoot from your four-wheeler, it doesn't take very many you know, they, they can learn to associate right. one thing with danger. There's a big difference, too, comparing Midwest versus here because you're talking about a significantly higher amount of hunters in Pennsylvania, higher hunting pressure. There's a lot a lot that goes said with that. Yeah, you have to try not to apply pressure. If, if you want older bucks to hang around, you just can't get away with applying a lot of pressure. And that pressure could be noise, smells. A little bit of activity. You talked about Dwayne Diefenbach. You know, I had him come and at a couple of my meetings and give his presentation on the buck movement study. Yeah. Fascinating. Very. Fascinating. You know, a deer will spend his whole year in a 200-acre area, and the Sunday before the Monday opener, he would just take off, go to some ridge that, was, that I know damn well from looking at the map, that it's rocky, steep, full of mountain laurel, and lay there for three days and not move. And 
So when you go there and you, you've been seeing this buck all summer and oh, I want to hunt that buck, you go out and you start shooting, right? Four wheelers and going out and setting up your stands. Your stand should be set up in springtime and then left alone until you hunt them. Amen. The guys that are consistently killing the big bucks, that's how they do it. Mm-hmm. You know, the superstars of hunting, you don't catch them going out and setting up a stand in October or November. That's crazy. Or let alone two days before the season. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you ask me what the number one problem that I see out there Mm -hmm. with landowners is having a lack of undisturbed area on their property where deer can feel safe. The other thing is that everybody wants to hunt on top of the food plot Mm -hmm. because that's where the deer are coming. But what you find is that they get wise to that pretty quick. And, you know, just just for example, I was down in Georgia, and nobody had been hunting in there for a couple of weeks. I got into a blind looking, looking over some food, saw a ton of deer that first night. The next night I saw some deer. The next night I saw zero <laughs> until dark, you know, okay. dark 30. They knew I was there, and I've had that happen to me up here, too, in Pennsylvania, where, you know, I'm guilty of the same thing. You want to hunt where you see a lot of deer because it's fun to see deer. Sure. But you have to get out of the habit of hunting on your food. You want to have your food at one end of the property and your cover at the other end, come in from the sides and hunt in between. That way you have reliable (laughs) traffic. But as soon as you go nocturnal on your property, now you have to get off the property for about two weeks until mm-hmm. everything settles down again. And we don't have time for that. You have to be in and out without being detected if you possibly can. That's a hard, hard thing to do, especially when you're up in the mountains here and the wind is constantly swirling and you have... Uh, thermals going on, and as soon as the sun goes down, the wind completely changes 180 degrees. It's, it's a tough thing. Certainly. But it's necessary to figure it out. And if the wind is too squirrely that day, you may just have to get down, go home, and come back on another day. Mm-hmm. Or come back when there's snow in the forecast and you know a deer are going to come to food. Um, if you have that luxury, you know, most guys don't. You know, most guys, you know, we have a fairly short hunting season and everybody all hunts at the same time and the deer all go and hide and nobody kills anything and then they complain that there's no deer. (laughs) Um, That's why another thing is that if you're serious, serious about killing big bucks, you need to get your own land and you're the only guy that hunts it. Or you manage have, the pressure very accordingly. Well, if, if you have, if you can find, and I know a guy I'd like to buy land with, you have to find like-minded individuals. And that way you can, you can hunt it correctly and manage it. Where I hunt, everybody shows up. They like to drink, <laughs> ride their four-wheelers. Uh, the guy I was telling you about earlier has the 500 acres. You would think 500 acres, he could grow big bucks. And he does grow them, but they're not there in hunting season because he likes to invite all his buddies. 
they smoke cigars, get drunk at night, and then they ride their four-wheelers all up in the woods and go to their stands. Mm -hmm. They never see, you know, they get a few bucks, but they don't see any big giants. Sure. Because those bigger, older deer, they just don't put up with that. So how can anybody listen to this, get a hold of you, or look you up in, in any of the social media things you've got? Well, chillcoatforester.com is my website. There's articles in there you can read, and there's uh, contact uh, doohickeys that you can click on, and, and you can send me an email through uh, the website. And uh, my uh, phone number is all over the place. I mean, if you put in Stephen Chillcoat in the in the Google, all kinds of stuff will come up. And uh, you can call me. You know, I don't. A lot of times, guys don't want to give out their phone numbers. I don't get that many phone calls that I need to cut people off from my phone. Uh, you can call me anytime. I love to talk about forestry and wildlife habitat. And you can always send me an email. Um, I'm pretty easy to to find on the internet. And I'll make sure that we have a link in the description for Steve's website and. Um, your YouTube channel and make sure we, we tag that, that you can see that in the description and as well as on our Facebook page. Yeah. The YouTube channel, you know, you could, I do have people comment every once in a while. They'll send me an email and say, I just watched all of your YouTube videos. Wow. And I'm like, man, <laughs> you got nothing else better to do, <laughs> but there's a lot of good information on your YouTube channels. So. I try to. Not just fill time with YouTube. And what I'm finding is that as far as the algorithm, they like to see you post a lot of crap. And I don't like to post anything unless I got something to say. So I don't have any regular schedule. I usually, um, if I think of something I think would be a good subject, it's usually appropriate to the season. I just posted a video about doing your, um, you know, checking your sex ratio post harvest. Yep. So as soon as deer season's over, um, that's a good time to do a, a camera trap and see what you got left. See if there's any bucks still around, what your sex ratio looks like. See if the does are getting their fawns through the winter. If you don't see any fawns, then you might want to get a coyote hunter or a trapper to come in. And, you know, you can't manage what you don't measure. So you're constantly measuring, making improvements, and doing the management that's appropriate. So, you know, as far as my YouTube channel, like you'll see a lot of uh, food plot stuff come spring. Uh, right now, we're probably going to post some things about logging. I have a logging job. I'm trying to get started. That's going to be a really interesting project, so stay tuned for that. So, uh and then when I do have real estate for sale, I like to post uh, a video about the, the property that I've listed. Right now, I have no listings. I sold everything. People just bought up everything. Mm, yeah, it seems to be the market we're in. Yeah, it's hard to keep anything on the market. <laughs> so if you're a seller, call me because your land is worth a lot of money. <laughs> but if you're a buyer, I'm sorry to, sorry to be you because... <laughs> Man, you got to pay. If you want a piece of ground now, you really have to pay for it. Certainly. Well, Steve, I can't thank you enough for your time. Um, 
and thanks for coming on for this podcast. It's my pleasure, and we'll have to do this again sometime. Agreed, without a doubt. I'll drive down to your place next time. That sounds good. <laughs> Take care. All right.